Welcome to the VML Voice, the official podcast of the Virginia Municipal League. I'm your host, Rob Bullington. Let's dive in. One of the great things about language is that there's a name for everything, even the things we fear. For example, if you're afraid of revolving doors, then you've got sercentomophobia. Got an intense, uncontrollable fear of chickens? Well then, my friend, take some comfort in knowing the name of your fear, electorophobia. Surely, you say, there are some things that can't possibly inspire fear, like, I don't know, jello. Who could possibly be afraid of jello? While it's true that the vast majority of us are able to bravely face up to the jello in our lives, those that suffer from zelatinophobia would prefer to look the other way. Thankfully, it's relatively easy to go through life avoiding revolving doors, chickens, and jello. But for public officials and local government staff, there's one common fear that is almost impossible to avoid. I'm speaking of speaking. In public, that is. It's called glossophobia, and it's one of the most common fears there is. In fact, some studies have estimated that as much as 75% of people suffer from a fear of public speaking. But have no fear, because the VML Voice is here to help. Welcome to part one of our two-part series on successful strategies for public speaking. In this episode, we will be hearing from a communications instructor with VML member organization, the American Public University System, which you can learn more about at apus.edu. But I've been talking too long already. Obviously, I don't suffer from a fear of microphones or microphone phobia. Yeah, that's what it's really called. So, without further ado, let's meet our guest, Maisha Grady, who is coming to us from Chicago, Illinois, and is going to kick things off by telling us what she does and why she does it. As you know, I am Maisha Grady, and I would say that my things that I do now is I am an adjunct faculty member at American Public University Systems. I was full-time and I scaled back to part-time because I received an opportunity to teach in person at another college here in Illinois. So I teach public speaking 100% on campus at a local community college and then part-time online for APUS, as well as I am a business advisor for the Women's Business Development Center here in Chicago. So I do an array of things um, in relation to public speaking. I help the business owners um, and entrepreneurs to figure out how in which they want to set up their businesses. I have a webinar that I've done a couple of times with the city of Chicago teaching business owners and entrepreneurs how to um, pitch their business in a more effective way to get people to really listen to what they have to say. I also translate that back to my classrooms we're teaching public speaking because my students have to be able to speak on things that are passionate for them so that they can speak more fluidly about it. So that that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> have you always been comfortable speaking in public? Uh, yes. When, when did when did you know you wanted to help others be better at this particular and incredibly valuable skill? 
So I, my grandmother has always pushed me to be um, a very good public speaker from kindergarten. I was in different programs in elementary school where I had to get up at assemblies or do like a special Black history play or something like that. So um, I've always been in front of people, never been afraid to speak in front of strangers and things like that. Like my children now, I don't think they've met a stranger yet which is kind of scary, but at the same time, it's really, they feel very confident in their ability to communicate with others. And that just comes from me because I'm always speaking to people, whether I know them or not, in the grocery stores and things like that. But I didn't figure out my niche when it came to teaching others until I was kind of thrust into teaching courses. I had, I used to work at a university in an admin um, position and the dean of the department that I worked in, um, my boss didn't really care for her. And I was like, well, why don't we care for this 70 year old lady? What does she have? Like, what is going on? So, so I, um, um, I was running around the school um, for a fitness thing that, that, that the school was promoting and she saw my T-shirt um, was from a church that she's affiliated with. So she stopped me in the hallway to talk to me like, hey, you know, I see you have the T-shirt on. I've been in that church for 30 years. And I was like, wow. And, you know, we had a conversation. And then um, every now and again, we would pass through the hallway. And then one day I stopped her. I said, you know what, Dean? I want your job. And she was like, really? She was like, you set an appointment and come talk to me. So I went, I set the point, I set the appointment during lunch hour and her and I were just chit-chatting in her office. And she was like, well, if you want my job, you have to teach. And I was like, but I don't want to teach. She was like, oh, well, you don't want my job. So we started talking a little more about the teaching aspect. And she was just like, how about you create a workshop in the communications department for one credit hour and just try your hand at it? She was like, you are saying no to something you've never done before. So I was just like, okay, sure. So she connected me with the chair of the communications department. And she told me, you know, some. she asked me some things that I was interested in. And I've always been interested in television. Um, and I did an internship for a master's degree doing a documentary on um, Pastor Wright, which is um, um, former President Obama's um, spiritual leader. And so I did a documentary on him because I was at the church. I did an internship at the church and all this good stuff. And she was just like, if you have a passion about television or film, why don't you create a one credit hour workshop on that? So I created the workshop. I had so many people signing up based on the topic alone. It was called sexual content in the media. My class was booked. As soon as that went... It was booked and it was booked because they had continued to run the same communication courses over and over again because they didn't have anyone create new content. So mine was not only new content, my content had the word sex in it. So <laughs> that's to say, people. it's kind of, you know, I mean, you know <laughs> yes. it sells, exactly. So that drew the students to my class. And when I delivered it, I had so much fun doing it. And then um, I don't really care to grade papers, so I had my students to do a presentation. And one of my students got up there and was like, oh, I'm so nervous. Oh, Miss Grady, I'm so nervous. Like, she just kept saying that <laughs> over and over again. And I wrote it down. I was like, fear of public speaking. And so that was my next workshop. 
So since then, I've just been really into public speaking and doing research and reading textbooks on communication and getting over your fear of speaking. And it's just been so fulfilling and gratifying for me that I was like, this is definitely my lane. So, I mean, you just mentioned like, you know, there was a job that you wanted, but in order to do it, you had to try this thing you hadn't really cared to do before, which was teach. And you found that you loved that. So I'm thinking about like, you know, somebody who's going to be running for office that has some really great ideas. But I mean, you literally can't run for office without campaigning, which means talking in mm-hmm. front of people. Or let's say, you know, you, you've gone to school to, to get all the skills you need to be an effective manager um, and you want to work in local government. But then, you know, every on a regular basis, you have to present things to council. And that means speaking in public. What right. are some of the foundational things like the most basic things someone can do if they're really uncomfortable talking in front of groups of people, whether it be three or 300 people? Well, for for one, you just have to know who you are. Like, if you know who you are and what you stand for, you will be able to talk openly about those things. That's the assumption. But some people believe that their belief systems or their their training is not sufficient for the work that they need to do. And so if they go back and they think about it like, hey, you know, this is actually – good skills. These are things that people really need. This is what I really need to give my audience. Then you'll somewhat push past where you are because you know you have something of value to give to others. The second thing is, is that you have to be willing to go and speak to strangers. Just go spark up a conversation with somebody at the grocery store. Make a comment about their shoes or the product that they just picked up. And be more personable with strangers in random situations. Don't shy away from an opportunity to say hello and to be greeted with, you know, how are you? And actually have an answer and not just, oh, good. Like sometimes you may be like, you know what? It's going to be an exhausting day. Like, tell the truth. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes you'll be surprised at the uh, at the way in which people respond to that. They didn't they didn't think that they would get that response from you. And so they're like, whoa, like, you know, somebody's really looking to engage in conversation here. And if they're not looking to engage in conversation, that's fine. Move on to the next stranger. But the minute you get comfortable with speaking to strangers, when you get in a room full of 10 or maybe 10,000 people, they won't, they won't look at, you won't look at them as they're strangers or they're, they're opposing you. You will actually be more engaged and willing to have the conversations that you need to have at that point. You've, you've just talked about, you know, uh, being confident in your knowledge and yourself um, and then just being willing to engage people, uh, which is something that anybody can practice just going through the mm-hmm. world. But taking those skills, taking those ideas and then saying, all right, I have to deliver, you know, um, a 30 minute presentation on this incredibly technical and detailed and, you know, not common knowledge subject um, to these people that know nothing about it. And I know everything about it and they know nothing. And I've got to figure out a way to a get the information in a to them in a way they understand and be like maintain their attention for 30 minutes what mm-hmm. how do you take that those skills you just talked about and use those to deliver incredibly technical information that could otherwise just slide right on past people so when you have a lot of information to give folks but you only have a short period of time to do it you have to pick the best thing to talk about that will make the biggest impact 
So you have this wealth of information that you want to share. If you could pick the top three things that you want to expand on, that is definitely going, excuse me, that is definitely going to help you in your delivery. So, because then you have just very specific things that you can touch on. And that's going to help you to build a better speech because you have focus. I'll get back to my conversation with Maisha in just a moment. But first, I want to let you know that the VML Voice is made possible by the support of Virginia Housing, investing in the power of home to help Virginia communities thrive. You can learn more about Virginia Housing at virginiahousing.com. The VML Voice is also supported by Dominion Energy, committed to serving their customers and the communities where we all live and work. You can learn more at dominionenergy.com. And now, let's get back to that conversation with Maisha. I went into, worked a, a corporate job for a while. And uh, as you know, in most businesses, particularly larger larger businesses, uh, PowerPoints are sort of the way people um, deliver information to each other. Yes. And uh, I really grew to hate PowerPoints. And so when I came to VML, <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, this is great. You know, it's a totally different, you know, I'm now in a, a public, it's more public uh, information out there. I'm sure, uh-huh. I'm sure that when I go to these, you know, events or meetings that, you know, it'll be a lot more uh, engaging and darn it if those PowerPoints weren't still ubiquitous. I mean, they're still everywhere. <laughs> so given that I guess they're just part of how the world works now, how do you keep people from just delivering what's on a slide on a PowerPoint? Because there is nothing more dull than watching somebody just read what's already sitting on a screen in front of you. It is death by PowerPoint. It is such a, it's so hard to get people out of the idea that they have to put everything on a slide. So my course, I teach um, 16 weeks in person. And I only have maybe 70 slides. My slides are very minimal. The only reason why I use a slide, which is the point of PowerPoint, is to bring attention to very specific things in a visual way. Sometimes a picture can say things a lot better than you can. Or it can help you emphasize what you're saying. So if you think of a slide that a council person would put up, most times it's going to be something that has a lot of statistics, a lot of data thrown at people. One thing about the PowerPoint slides is no one's going to remember the 20 bullet points you had with very specific statistics on it. They're just not. So the best way to present that to people is to give handouts. Give them the handouts with all of those stats, those numbers, the things that you really want to drive home about the communities that you represent. Put it in their hands. Why does it need to be on the slide? And when you put it in their hands, do you have to duplicate that on the slide? It's like, okay, let's turn to page two of this handout and you'll see on the slide. And it's like, why is it on the slide if it's already in my hand? At this point, On your slide, I will probably want to see the highlighted sections you really want me to focus on. Or show me a graph 
where those numbers are really seen to trend. And make sure the graph is very clear and doesn't have a bunch of words, small words at the bottom and on the X and the Y axis and all these different dots. and It has to be very simplistic. When it's more complicated, people can't really view that on the PowerPoint slides as best as they could view it if it was on the paper in front of them. And also, if you are talking about representation within a community, how about have a slide with a picture of the people that you're representing in that community or the problem in which you're trying to address in that community? Put a power, put a slide with a picture of that and then bullet point along the, along the side if you have to. The worst thing you could do is put more writing on the slides because that means you have to turn and look at the slides as opposed to looking at your audience. And the minute you look at your slides, your audience is looking at those slides with you and thus they might read slower than you. So they're still looking at the slides when you have moved on in your presentation. People really miss opportunities to really get the audience to not only pay attention to what they're saying, but engage with the information that they're saying. The minute you can get people to engage, you got them and you're never going to lose them. Is it possible for political leaders to do this? Absolutely. They crack jokes all the time. And why do they crack jokes? Because laughter creates a communal opportunity for your audience. Now, am I saying that every political leader needs to crack a joke? No, because not everybody's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it could be perceived as very awkward <laughs> and unnecessary. But if that is your lane, if you're able to do that, why not do that? Or why not get people to look around the room and question, like throw questions out there, like look at them. Do they look like they'll be good people that'll be upstanding in your communities? And just have them look around. What do you know? People are actually laughing and engaging now because they're looking people up and down and maybe giving side eyes to some people that they know, right? <laughs> you know, you mentioned something there that I wanted to follow up on. You were talking about how somebody will, will tend, if there's too much information on a slide, they'll look at the slide and then the whole audience is looking at the slide and everybody's looking at the slide. And I wanted to talk about that, the, the, the mechanics of speaking, right? The, the gaze, like where, where are your eyes focused? Do you have any, uh, any good tips and tricks in, in that realm um, for people who are maybe just getting used to public speaking? Absolutely. You want to find the friendly faces in the audience. You want to find the people who look like they are engaging with what you're talking about when you do have eye contact with the audience. The last thing you want to do is focus on the people with their arms crossed and looking for you to mess up because those people are going to kind of knock you off of what you need to be doing. When you look at a slide, it's okay to point to it and have your audience to look at particular things that you want them to see on the slide. And then when you start to engage with them again, if there is less writing on the slide, they're most likely going to put their attention back on you especially if it's a big enough slide where you can walk in front of it. Walk so the eye contact draws back to you. Hmm. If, you stand by, yeah, if you stand behind the podium the whole time, people are going to do nothing but stare at the slide and never look over at you unless you say something that will make them look at you. Standing behind the podium definitely puts a barrier between you and your audience. In my classes... They are not allowed to use the podium. Hmm. 
I use the podium periodically because I have my notebook or I have my laptop sitting there and I use it to advance the slides or to go back to my textbook. But the majority of the time, I am walking in front in the center of the room. I actually go into the room and I position the tables in a way that which I want them that makes it easier for me to get around the room to the students. I also have them sitting in groups together because I want them to engage in conversations and get to know each other. Use that opportunity to network with their peers so that they know who to go to if there is a question that I haven't been able to respond right away or the sharing of books and tools and things that they would need. I give plenty of group projects. So when you are going to some, going to a place to give a presentation, get there early so you can see what the setup is. How far do I need my voice to carry? How can I engage more with my audience? Where should I stand that my audience is looking more at me and less at my technology? And then also, you can build in slides in between your slides to get your audience to have their focus back on you. So you can use a slide with a logo or a slide with a picture or something that you're moving on to that doesn't have words. That way, the audience is more focused on you, less on the slide. I've also seen it where people have had blank slides in between slides to do the same effect. Mm. That can be somewhat distracting, but for the most part, if it's used effectively, it could really work. But if you want that eye contact on you and what you have to say, then that means that you have to get your audience eyes off of your screen. The more words you put, the more they're going to read. If you have handouts, they have all the information they need in front of them. The slides is to emphasize specific things that you have provided in the handouts. What makes the difference between somebody who's a good public speaker, you know, competent and, and able to deliver, and then just the fantastic public speakers, you know, the rock stars that you've seen that just that just really can just hold a, an audience, whoever they are, however many they are, in the palm of their hand and, and get their point across or persuade them or do whatever it is they need to do? What, what, what makes that, that jump from just being good to being great? Charisma. Yeah. But that's sort of a, ineffable, isn't it? I mean, how do you... How do you acquire charisma? Charisma is when you you feel comfortable enough to engage with your audience and you are not afraid to be vulnerable with people. Um, I, I tell my students that, well, I don't just tell them, but the, the textbook that we use talks about the four C's of credibility. It talks about being competent. It talks about being caring, being charismatic. And being, what's the next, oh, having character. So in order for your audience to believe that you are a credible person or a credible source of the information being shared, you have to possess all four C's. You have to show the audience that you care about your topic, that you care about their knowledge of the topic, and that you are competent and able to deliver the information effectively. And you want to make sure that you share that information in a cohesive manner. You want to show that you are a character, you have character. That means that you have some connection to that topic in some kind of way that you're able to show your audience that, hey, I'm trustworthy, I'm honest, and be able to speak to those traits as well. 
be able to share your experiences with others. Then you want to have that charisma about yourself. Be dynamic. Be willing to talk to them as if they're friends of yours. When you become too formal with your delivery, it sometimes turn off your audience. As humans, we want to see that your body language conveys a sense of caring, that you know what you're talking about, you're passionate about it, you can keep eye contact with me. Those things really help me connect to you. So those four C's is really what helps people to stand out from just a regular everyday speaker to a speaker who is actually who's passionate about this someone who really wants to connect with their audience. Those people are stellar. Apologies to those of you who have chronophobia, or the fear of the passage of time. But the time has come to conclude this episode of the VML Voice. Stay tuned for part two of our public speaking series, when I'll bring in another expert to discuss what it takes to build confidence as a speaker. The VML Voice is made possible through the support of Virginia Housing and Dominion Energy. Both of these organizations are part of VML's Community Business Member Program. If you're part of an organization that would like to become a member, let me know. You can reach me at rbullington at vml.org. And now, it's time for this episode's VML Voice of Reason. Now, am I saying that every political leader needs to crack a joke? No, because not everybody's funny.